Um, now I'd like to introduce our next speaker, Dr. Heidi Jacoby. She is a graduate of Baylor College of Medicine. She's trained in dermatology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School. A, she has a master's of clinical science with distinction from the University of Texas Southwestern Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences. She's currently the director of phototherapy at UT Southwestern Dermatology Clinic and the principal investigator investigator for UT Southwestern Morphia Registry. Please welcome Dr. Jacoby. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, good morning. It's, it's good to be back again uh, today, and uh, I hope you guys are having a good meeting so far. Um, just to get an idea of the audience here, how many of you have phototherapy available in the office where you work? Wow, this is really heartwarming. So there's a lot of people here. Of those of you that don't have phototherapy directly available in your office, how many of you have a phototherapy center kind of close to you or, or a place where you refer patients? So that really accounts for, for most of you. Um, so here's another question. How many of you are comfortable with phototherapy? Oh, excellent. This is great because actually when I ask the same question when I speak to dermatologists, I think actually the response might be a bit lower. Um, so that's great that you're having this, this uh, excellent amount of experience with this modality because I think it is very effective. Um, so I'm going to go through uh, today a little bit about uh, what the current uh, thinking is for optimum phototherapy protocols. And this will be mainly centered on psoriasis and atopic dermatitis. And we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the other disorders as well. Hopefully, after uh, concluding uh, the talk today, you'll have a little bit of a better idea in terms of what the optimum uh, dosing regimens might be for your phototherapy patients and a little bit more of an understanding of, of when to expect that you should see them improving and, uh, and you know, what types of things you can do if you don't seem to see that improvement occurring at the, the rate it should. So. Uh, what this talk is based on is actually a systematic review of the literature, and I think it's especially pertinent for this meeting because a lot of this data was put together by a PA student at Southwestern as part of her, her master's project. So this is a, a project that really had a huge contribution uh, with a, a physician's assistant. So. Basically, uh, phototherapy has a number of unique advantages as a therapeutic modality. Uh, one is that there are no systemic effects, with the exception of if you do PUVA. So this is a great modality for patients who are on a lot of medications, uh, have a lot of other health problems. Also for uh, women who are contemplating pregnancy or who are pregnant, uh, this is a great option. It's generally very well tolerated by most people, and it's really effective for a wide range of conditions, and I hope you'll walk away today thinking about some conditions that perhaps you don't typically think of for treating with phototherapy. One of the biggest advantages of phototherapy is, is access, uh, and it looks like a lot of you guys do have access to the modality, so that's great. Also, training of phototherapy technicians. Um, there might be an increased risk for skin cancer and photoaging, but the important take-home message here is that that link has only definitively been made with PUVA. Um, uh, Rob Stern out of uh, Harvard at the time, Johns Hopkins, did a big cohort study of people treated with PUVA, and he found that increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma and melanoma 
only link to that. Now, there's a number of large on, uh, ongoing studies actually in Scotland looking at the photocarcinogenesis of narrowband UVB. And to date, despite uh, treating thousands of patients over 5, 10, 15 years, they have not made a definitive link with increased skin cancer. I think the biggest barrier right now, for us at least, is reimbursement issues because as copays have gone up, the copays for phototherapy have gone up. So I think that's probably the biggest issue. Um, if you'd like to get involved with this, and if you think this is important, the National Psoriasis Foundation has an ongoing effort to try to change the way insurers are uh, uh, billing and paying for phototherapy to help patients with this problem. So, phototherapy is basically uh, occurs here in the ultraviolet light spectrum. And what, you, what we predominantly use are UVB and UVA. And this is a part, this is the electromagnetic spectrum here. And what you see is this is the, the barrier right here at 10 nanometers. If you go less than this, you actually go into ionizing radiation. So this is what they use for imaging and also for radiation therapy. Ultraviolet light sits, or radiation sits, between ionizing radiation and the visible light spectrum. And UVC is uh, germicidal radiation. However, its penetration into the skin is very, very superficial. It really doesn't go even that much past the stratum corneum. So even though it's very good at cross-linking DNA and killing microbes, it doesn't really exert much of a therapeutic effect in the skin because it doesn't reach the tissue, the lower parts of the epidermis that actually have viable cells, which it can influence. So what we use is UVB and UVA. UVA is actually broken down into UVA2 and UVA1. Uh, and this makes no sense to me. I would reverse it. But UVA2 is 320 to 340 nanometers, and UVA1 is 340 to 400 nanometers. And we actually, as a newer modality, have started using it UVA1. Uh, it's available in a few places in the country. We have it here in Dallas. There's a unit in Arkansas and Houston. Uh, the Mayo Clinic has one. Um, Henry Ford and the University of Michigan. Boston and San Francisco are the main places. But if you need this, uh, the company to call is Davlin. Uh, they're the sole importer of the units in the United States. So if you need one for a patient, that's the way to find one if there's clo one close to you. The important thing to remember here is as you increase in wavelength, the energy decreases. So as you go from UVB to UVA, what happens is that this has less energy. And so until recently, the only way you could really get a biologic effect with UVA was to use a photosensitizer, and that's why you use sorolin. Because UVB is of higher energy, you don't need a concomitant photosensitizer. Also, because of that, the dosing is different. Whenever you deal with UVB, it will be in millijoules, versus UVA is dosed in joules, again, because you have less energy. The other thing to remember that's pertinent here is UVB, this is the erythema spectrum or the sunburn spectrum. And it actually, the sunburn spectrum is right down here, right around 300. So as you move further away from 300, uh, the less erythema you get. And that also allows us to give these very high doses comparatively of UVA versus UVB. Especially with UVA1, we're actually giving people doses up to 120 joules because we are so far away from that erythema spectrum. 
So what are the origins of phototherapy? Actually, this is probably one of the oldest medical therapies around, uh, and it goes as far back as Hippocrates, who advocated sunlight and water for various dermatoses. And uh, Greeks actually built solariums in the mountains where you have greater uh, ultraviolet light penetration for treatment of these disorders. Um, basically, photosensitizing agents that are uh, very related to the sorolens that we use now were found uh, uh, in India, they were used quite a bit to treat vitiligo as well as a number of other countries. The age of modern phototherapy actually uh, started in the late eight, uh, 1800s to treat lupus vulgaris. And uh, in the 20s and 30s is where they really started developing the modern bulbs as we would think of them today. And uh, they also started using various uh, compounds to coat the bulbs or include in the bulbs to make the output of them more specific. Um, and this was uh, Anderson and Geckerman were the first ones to really describe the therapeutic potential of these bulbs in the 1920s. And to this day, even some of you might have heard of the Geckerman regimen. So the modern bulbs that you see are really just fluorescent bulbs like you would get anywhere else. But what happens is they have a phosphor coating the glass. And the phosphor has different compositions to produce different emission spectra. So the phosphor coating is what allows to have the specific wavelength output of the bulbs. And most traditional cabinets, those of you who have them will see this is your traditional phototherapy type cabinet. And they have anywhere between 24 to 42 lamps. And some of them, you might have combination cabinets. So what they'll actually have, and I've seen now they go up to 48, half of them will be, say, UVA, and the other half will be narrowband UVB bulbs. The important thing to remember when you look at these cabinets are that the output is going to be related to the number of bulbs that you have. So the fewer bulbs you have, obviously, the less output you have from the bulbs, which means your treatment times will go up a bit. So when you think of a phototherapeutic regimen, it's a lot like I tend to think of it a little bit like chemotherapy in a sense that what you're thinking about, you need to consider your initial dose. And that's typically based on the skin phototype of the patient. In other words, their ability to tan uh, or burn. And then you need to think about what your dosing increment is from there. Also concomitant with that is what is the ideal frequency of treatment, and then the difference between induction and maintenance. So the idea is to start someone off dosed appropriately for their skin type, increasing at the appropriate amount each treatment to get them up to a therapeutic dose quickly but safely, to have them come at the ideal frequency of treatment to clear them as rapidly as you can. And that's induction. That reflects an increase of dose pretty consistently over time. Maintenance, however, is what you initiate upon clearance or optimal improvement of the patient. At that time, your goal is to keep them at that dose. So when you move to maintenance, the most important thing is you do not decrease the dose of their light treatments. If you want to think about it, that's the amount of drug they need to clear their skin disease. So your goal is to stay within 10% of that. What you do is you only change one variable at a time, which is you change the frequency at which they come. So that's how you move into maintenance. And burning 
in induction and maintenance is a different phenomenon. During induction, it might mean you have increased too rapidly and that your increased increments are too large. Burning during maintenance, remember the patient was able to tolerate that dose that actually cleared their skin, is either a reflection of did they get other sun exposures, are they started on a photosensitizing medication, or is the increment or the interval between the treatments too long and they're losing their resistance and so they're subsequently burning. So burns are very different between induction and maintenance. And I think if you take anything away from this lecture that will really help you in your practice, it's this idea of induction and maintenance. So, what are our goals? Well, we'd like to clear skin disease, we'd like to limit unwanted side effects, and we want to limit exposure as much as we can to try to limit any unwanted late adverse effects. So, uh, what do you do? What do you think about? Uh, I think that what you want to think about is what is the optimal wavelength of ultraviolet light to use for a particular skin condition, and then like we talked about, the dose, the frequency, the increment, and the maintenance. So what we tried to do to answer this question in developing our own protocols at Southwestern when I first started is we tried to take an evidence-based approach and we wanted to look at the literature and then base our protocols on what we could define from the literature. Um, and this is kind of the summary of what we found. Uh, unwanted underlining. Uh, so what we did is a systematic review, and basically what we did is we searched the scientific literature for uh, research articles in peer-reviewed journals and uh, reports on the current state of knowledge. And then, uh, so what we wanted to do is summarize it all so uh, you could just read kind of one summary or here, one summary of this. And there's a number of different systematic reviews, and these are a hot topic. A lot of these are published in the literature uh, recently. But basically, what we did is a qualitative systematic review because this, there's not enough randomized control trials with outcome measures to do a meta-analysis. And basically what this is is a literature review that employs explicit and rigorous methods to find all primary research articles. Uh, it combines multiple database searches such as Ovid and PubMed and Google, uh, as well as hand searches of any other papers that you find. Uh, and you create a systematic appraisal for each article in terms of its inclusion and also its quality. Uh, and you create a structured focused question and that allows us to determine the criteria for inclusion. So basically, the strengths of this is that it helps you in terms of putting together a wide array or body of knowledge uh, and allows you to make some conclusions, hopefully, about what the best ways are to treat patients. So the problem with this, though, and particularly when you deal with it in phototherapy, is that uh, you don't get any real theory of, dis uh, of its uh, mechanism of action. You can't an an analyze this statistically at all because everyone's using a different outcome measure and a different regimen, so it certainly isn't a randomized control trial, and there's this inherent level of judgment that you need to use to decide whether or not to include a certain amount of information. So when we did this, these were our search methods. These were the terms that we used as well as the databases that we used uh, in conjunction with uh, a librarian at Southwestern. These were our criteria, and we tried to include uh, concomitant medications. 
And we'll go through our results. Uh, we found uh, for psoriasis actually had the greatest amount of evidence out there. There were 22 articles that met our criteria. And you can see here a lot of them had to do with com uh, comparing different modalities and then uh, looking at formulations of sorolin and PUVA. Uh, derma, atopic dermatitis, we only found nine papers, so less than half of what we found for psoriasis. And a lot of these had to do with UVA1, because this is one of the newer uh, therapeutic modalities out, as well as combining different phototherapeutic modalities. So we'll just briefly go over uh, what we found. So for psoriasis, one of the big things when narrowband UVB came out uh, in the late 80s and 90s, we'd been using broadband UVB to date. How many of you still use broadband UVB? Does anyone? Okay. So uh, basically, do all of you have narrowband UVB? Is that the predominant modality you have for the people who have it? Okay, so basically uh, what they found is that uh, in general, it seemed to be there was a trend towards faster clearance with narrowband UVB and at least some you know, improvement in terms of maybe a better outcome with narrowband than broadband UVB. So the general thinking was based on these studies is that narrowband UVB is probably better than broadband UVB for psoriasis. Uh, however, these studies had several, many uh, lacking aspects of methodology included, but, uh, but one other thing is that they found is uh, that narrowband tends to burn people a little bit less, and that probably has to do with the fact that broadband UVB includes that erythema spectrum, as we mentioned earlier. So generally, narrowband is probably a little better than broadband, although not extraordinarily so. It might clear patients faster, and it might have less problems with erythema. Narrowband UVB versus PUVA, and this actually has been the subject of extensive study, and some of the more recent studies that came out of a, a big series at St. John's in London actually pointed to the fact that PUVA might be slightly superior to narrowband UVB in treating psoriasis, particularly the thicker plaques. Um, however, patients prefer narrowband UVB because they don't have to take sorolin and wear the goggles. So what they found is that um, the clearance doses, kind of the take-home points of these studies are that they, the clearance doses are around, depending on here, around 35 uh, for narrowband UVB, and then it seemed a little bit longer for PUVA. And they, in comparison with PUVA and narrowband, they had more erythema with narrowband, but less compliance with PUVA, again, because people don't like to wear the glasses. So again, there were limitations. They did not test people equally. The, uh, they, uh, the studies were done very differently. And you don't always have a total cumulative dose. So basically, what we found is that erythema had the biggest side effect, and narrowband has more erythema than PUVA. So if you kind of want to grade this, uh, it seems that uh, narrowband is better than broadband UVB, but perhaps not. Uh, less, more erythema than with PUVA. Uh, and narrowband was as effective as PUVA in three out of four studies, um, except one study in which uh, long-term remission is, is better with PUVA. Patients preferred narrowband over PUVA, and uh, the number of treatments was greater with narrowband over PUVA, but the number of days to clearance were not that different. So. To date, narrowband UVB is probably the preferred modality for psoriasis. 
so then the question is, how frequently should you treat patients with narrowband UVB? And I think that these studies went from two times per week up to five times per week. And what they generally found is the middle seems to be the best. If you look at the amount of erythema, you can see five times per week there was a lot of erythema occurring with the patients. Um, and in terms of days to clearance, two times per week was 88 days to clearance. So it took a really long time. Five times per week was 35 days, but there was a lot of erythema. And three times per week, it was around 58 to 40, time, 40 days to clearance. Uh, and as you can see here, the number of treatments was kind of similar across the board. So what should you take away from this? Probably the optimal number of times per week to treat someone with psoriasis for narrowband UVB for the induction phase is three times per week. What you should tell your patients is that they will probably clear if they're responsive to the therapy and come regularly in 40 to 58 days, which will equal 17 to 23 treatments. So this is also a great quality measure for you guys. Are you obtaining this on average in your patients or is it taking much longer? And if it is taking much longer, you might want to think about what is it that, that's causing this problem. So uh, basically is uh, we don't know a lot about how remittive narrowband UVB is, and that's what makes maintenance versus discontinuing the, the treatment very difficult. So this goes uh, together with what we said. And so here's the other question. So if you treat them three times per week, what is the dosing increment you should use in terms of increasing the dose? Now, I suspect most of you are using a pre-made increment, so the patients are going up according to kind of this pre-made chart you probably got either from the manufacturer or from the National Psoriasis Foundation. And these studies looked at high increments, so 40% of the minimal erythema dose versus 20% of the minimal erythema dose. And here, 35% versus 70%. And what they found is that if you start um, if you start using the higher increments, you get more burning, but not necessarily faster clearance. So your lower increment regimen was superior. Uh, and it gives you a little less cumulative dose over time. So it's a little bit difficult to know. But what I will tell you and what I would ask you to do and consider in your practice is actually rather than using, say, you know, go up by 20 millijoules each treatment, consider looking into regimens that are in the literature where you actually go up by a percentage if you're able to, because the percentage will give you a faster increase in the dose because it's going to go up as you go up in the dose overall. And I would probably recommend something around 15 to 20% per treatment if the patient tolerates it. So what would we say for phototherapy for psoriasis? Probably narrowband is first line, PUVA you should consider for unresponsive disease or very thick plaques if the patient is uh, not otherwise uh, has contraindications and is willing to do it. Um, the initial dose, all these studies use minimal erythema dosing, which is labor intensive and I think difficult in most private practice settings. We, we do it in our academic center with even variable success there. So use a Fitzpatrick skin type dosed uh, uh, dosing regimen. Remember, not only look at your patients, but ask them how they do in sunlight. Assign them a Fitzpatrick skin type according to what they have, and they should be 
Theoretically, when you do that, the way these are calculated, it should be around 70% of their MED. If you can at all, change your regimens to uh, you do your dosing increments at 10 to 20% as tolerated and treat them three times per week. And they should be clearing somewhere between 16 to the mid-20 number of treatments. So, and this is a proposed treatment regimen. I'll leave my talk in the back and you guys are certainly welcome to have it and take it home with you so you can have this at home. So phototherapy for atopic dermatitis. I think this is something that is uh, not uh, frequently considered for these patients, but for patients who fail topical therapy, uh, and this is a great consideration. Um, however, if we had not a lot of evidence for psoriasis, we have even less for atopic dermatitis. So one of the big things that happened several years ago is the idea of using UVA1 for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And uh, UVA1 is a, a newer, probably one of the newer modalities out for phototherapy. As we discussed, this takes advantage of the longer wavelengths of far UVA so it doesn't burn people as much. UVA, when you look at the literature, is defined as low dose, medium dose, and high dose, which you see defined here based on how many joules you're delivering. Um, the old boxes had an immense heat load uh, as a major side effect of them, but they have now created a number of cold phototherapy units, which essentially means that boxes have a ton of ventilation to keep the patients cool. Um, the biggest reason why phototherapy is not widely available in the United States is because it's expensive. A whole body box costs about $70,000 and the installation can cost twenty dollars to $30,000. Um, way it's built is, is very time consuming and literally ours was built by, by a man and a few assistants in Germany and when something breaks I call him and we lose reception in the Alps and he tells me his glass blower has to make more filters over several months. So that's probably why you don't see a lot of it. Although there are fluorescent lamp cubicles available that work just like regular phototherapy boxes and are priced similar to phototherapy boxes. The problem with those is they tend to really not deliver much more than low to medium dose, and that's what they have at MD Anderson in Houston. So these are the fluorescent lamp cubicles. They're available through National Biological. Uh, they have started boosting the output of those, so you can get on the higher range of medium dosing, but it takes about an hour to do that. Uh, ours are the high output metal halide sources. Those are the expensive ones, and they're manufactured here in Germany, and they're distributed through Davlin. And that's why I said if you need to find one of these, the people to contact are Davlin. They can tell you where they've, they've sold them. So this is a, a, a picture of a localized unit, uh, and this is the treatment area, and it has one metal halide bulb in here. So, and there's a whole body one as well. So these, prior to UVA-1, in Europe especially, they actually treated patients with a combination of UVA and B, which we don't do a lot in the United States. But basically, what they found in the, a lot of these studies using medium-dose UVA-1 is that for acute atopic dermatitis, which was poorly defined, UVA-1 seemed to do better. And these were a series of studies done in Europe that, again, seemed to show that uh, UVA-1 was very effective for acute flares of atopic dermatitis, and the authors concluded to use that combined with maintenance with narrowband UVB seemed to be a good way to go. 
and unfortunately, these were all done in Europe, so we know nothing about UVA1 in darker skin types, and there was no long-term follow-up to know how well these patients did. Uh, they also all used different UVA1 doses in over very short periods. They only treated them for 10 to 15 treatments. So what we can tell from the studies is UVA1 is probably faster acting than UVAB, and it might be more efficacious in the short term. And the newer cold light boxes are better, although there are some recent studies that show that this, in fact, might not be true and that narrowband does just as well. So optimal dosing of UVA1 is probably uh, medium to high dose is probably better than low doses. And this has been true for most of the studies for UVA1. And that's actually why the type of box is important, uh, because you can really only efficiently deliver the higher doses with the metal halide bulbs. And most of these people, if they improve, improve very quickly within the first week or two of treatment. Unfortunately, they tend to relapse after discontinuation, so you have to have a maintenance uh, plan in mind, which a lot of people switch them to narrowband UVB or intensive topicals. So looking at more traditional modalities, uh, I'm going not going to spend a lot of time on this because we don't do a lot of UVAB around, but uh, looking at this versus UVB or UVA alone, uh, basically they used very low UVB and very low patient numbers here. And they actually found the combination of UVAB is better than either modality alone. So if you are interested in doing this, there are protocols available uh, in the literature to do this because it might be a very effective modality. Although I have to say we, don't, we do not use it. Uh, narrowband UVB is probably still going to be your most effective modality out there for atopic dermatitis. And if you have it, you can also use UVA1. And you can see here, uh, they also use steroids in these studies. So what you want to think about is especially in chronic atopic dermatitis using narrowband UVB. So what can we, how do we put all of this together? And this is where I'd like to spend most of my time. Um, think about if you have access to it, UVA1 for acute flares when available, probably medium dose uh, to higher dose therapy, and usually the patient should improve fairly rapidly. We don't do a lot of maintenance with UVA1, so have a maintenance regimen in mind. I think that probably for most atopic patients, narrowband UVB continues to be the first line of therapy. Um, and like I said, narrowband and UVA1 might be equally efficacious. A few words, though, about treating atopics with phototherapy. Uh, if you have someone that is acutely inflamed and red hot, you're going to flare them if you just put them in the box. You really have to attempt to cool down these patients before you put them in the box from my personal experience, and how do you do that? I would recommend modified wet wraps. You know, have these patients get in the shower, coat themselves with 0.1 triamcinolone ointment and put on an old pair of pajamas and emollients. Have them do that intensively for a week or so, then start your phototherapy. The other pearl here is that phototherapy dries people out. It dries them out irregardless of what disorder you're treating, but it dries out atopics even more. So if you have a patient that says, oh, I'm doing phototherapy now, I don't have to do all my emollients and my appropriate skincare regimen, you will be bound for failure. They will get worse because the light will dry them out more, they'll itch more, they'll scratch, et cetera, et cetera. So this has to be accompanied by someone who is willing and able to do the appropriate skincare 
regimen. Otherwise, I think you're, you're just kind of setting yourself up for frustration and failure both on your end and on the patient's end. So that would be probably the biggest pearl that, that I've learned in my time doing this. Uh, Phototherapy for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Well, if there's not much evidence for atopic dermatitis, uh, one other thing I'll say is, is what we generally do is use the same regimen for narrowband UVB as we do for psoriasis. Uh, so phototherapy for mycosis fungoides, uh, really there's very little evidence out there um, in terms of, of treatment of MF in the ideal modalities and the ideal way to do it. Um, I think that it's very effective for the early stages of MF, but as you move more into the increasing depth and thickness of lesions, it becomes much less efficacious. I think that the biggest take-home point is narrowband UVB that really should only be used for patch stage MF. As you move into anything that is plaque or follicular, uh, you really need to consider something with deeper penetration like PUVA, uh, and there are some studies out of Europe with UVA1. So these were our search criteria that we used uh, with these criteria as well. And we basically didn't find anything. So there were several case series and observational studies and just these uh, two controlled clinical trials. So we also looked at uh, systemic uh, concomitant systemic immunomodulators and we found one other trial uh, looking at interferon plus PUVA uh, in patients. So basically, phototherapy for MF is very poorly investigated, and what we've been doing really in our center is basically treating patients the same way you would as if they had psoriasis, with the idea of narrowband UVB for patch and PUVA for plaque or uh, deeper lesions. So that would be the extent of that. So use your same modalities and regimens. Of note though, for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, it takes longer to clear. So on average, 30 to 40 treatments before those patients should be clearing, which is longer than for psoriasis. So this is uh, the patients we've treated with UVA1. And a treatment improvement score of three is moderate improvement, which we graded as uh, 50 to 75% improvement. And you can see here, uh, of the various people we've treated, a lot of them are having moderate improvement, which is pretty congruent with what's in, uh, in the literature. The other thing we were interested in, and we, we published this recently in the British Journal of Dermatology, is the idea of different skin phototypes. Can they respond to UVA1 phototherapy? Because all the studies to date have only looked at relatively fair-skinned people. Um, and what we found is there was really no big difference in terms of response to treatment uh, based on Fitzpatrick's skin type, with skin type one as the fairest people and uh, five as darker skinned people. I will say one limitation of our study is we did not actually treat anyone in skin type six. And you can see here, this is true for uh, systemic sclerosis and morphia, although it seemed at least with scleroderma, our skin type one patients did do a bit better. Also, UVA1 is a very useful modality for dyshydrosis. Uh, it's about equally as efficacious as topical PUVA. And so both of these modalities are something to consider for your hand dermatitis patients. So the main thing we treat with UVA1 is morphia or localized scleroderma. So I would uh, encourage you if you encounter a patient with morphia or localized scleroderma, if you have UVA1 available, uh, it's probably a great option for them. 
Uh, and it appears to be highly effective in linear and plaque lesions as long as they're fairly superficial in the skin. If you start getting deep involvement, uh, it probably is not going to be as efficacious. And generally, higher dosing is better than low. The same as for atopic dermatitis. Uh, it works relatively quickly. People will usually start having improvement after 10 to 15 treatments, and it seems to put this uh, disease into remission uh, in terms of uh, uh, having long-term improvement without reactivation for several months to years. Our main side effects have been itching and hyperpigmentation. We've very rarely seen erythema with this modality. It will induce polymorphic light eruption and HSV as any type of phototherapy would. Another consideration for if you run across any patients with scleroderma, UVA1 is something to really consider for these patients who have such limited options otherwise. It can really help uh, in softening their skin. And then uh, there's a number of other disorders that are reported to improve with UVA1 uh, listed here. So the other thing to think about is uh, phototherapy in general, and here we're talking about the traditional modalities like narrowband UVB, uh, which most of you have, is, is more than a treatment for just psoriasis and eczema. It really can be helpful for all these uh, disorders listed here. There's limited evidence in the literature, uh, but another big indication is vitiligo, and I really, uh, it can help patients repigment, not their hands and feet so much, but really their face and trunk, especially especially in early onset active vitiligo. Another great consideration, I've had great success with lichen planus, and you know how difficult it is to treat lichen planus, and it makes patients absolutely miserable, but narrowband UVB can be a great option for lichen planus, dosed similarly to psoriasis. Uh, itchy red bumps, uh, parigo nodules, uh, also can do very well, and a number of uh, underlying disorders that cause itching can oftentimes respond to phototherapy. And Grover's disease uh, is another one. Transient acanthalytic dermatosis is another great option, although do be careful because some of these patients, uh, ultraviolet light does exacerbate them. So with caution, but it can be beneficial. And Palmer plantar psoriasis is another great option. So the biggest thing as a pearl for success in phototherapy is your patient selection and managing their expectations. So I think patients need to be aware when they start phototherapy that they're in for the long haul and this likely will require them coming regularly uh, to the office for therapy. Also, try to give them an idea of the onset of action. So to recap, for psoriasis, the patients should ideally be improving at about 10 to 15 treatments and really clearing by the time they're in the 20 plus treatments if they're coming three times per week. Um, but duration of treatment varies from person to person. Some people might be able to stop and maintain their improvement over several weeks to months and then resume when they uh, become more severe. Others might need some form of long-term maintenance to keep their disease under control. And the biggest thing is to tell patients, don't say, oh, no, 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 we won't burn you. I find that, that that's a very bad thing because if they do happen to get red, they really then are quite upset. So we say we want to clear you as quickly as possible and get your disease under control. And it's an imperfect modality, and there is a chance that you might have a sunburn-like reaction. 
and then looking at atopic dermatitis, the onset of action is going to be a bit longer than for psoriasis, so it might be more like 20 treatments. They might need more like 30 to 40, and generally my experience is atopics don't clear as much as people with psoriasis, so you're really kind of looking at putting them at a place where they're a lot better and their disease is manageable. And again, with atopics, I find you're much more in the game of maintenance than you are with psoriasis. For mycosis fungoides, 30 to 40 treatments for clearance. Um, if you're not seeing it that, at that time point, uh, you likely uh, will need to employ some other type of treatment or combination therapy. Vitiligo, the studies done by Henry Lim at Henry Ford point to around uh, 25 treatments for the start of repigmentation. They recommend if you do 35 treatments with no significant repigmentation, it probably will not work at that point, but it can take up to hundreds to really repigment some one with vitiligo. So I think those are good guidelines in terms of setting up expectations for your patients uh, as well. Uh, patients oftentimes will ask you to compromise on the regimen. Oh, could I just come once a week? Um, the way I approach this is I usually tell them, look, you know, these regimens exist based on, on what we know for optimal effectiveness. And oftentimes coming once per week decreases efficacy and it also really uh, extends the time until you get better, which I think usually is frustrating. So I really try to have patients do the appropriate regimen. Uh, we uh, talked about this. Emollients are a huge, huge key thing for these patients, especially the atopics. And then for psoriasis patients or some of the Palmer plantar disorders, you really have to descale. Because if you think about it, if you have this big, thick layer of scale, you're, you're not getting any penetration through that. So remember your keratolytics uh, to try to descale the patients as, as much as you can. And that's it. Thank you. Do you guys have any questions? Yes. Oh, the other the other indications. Um, I've had. There's there's no difficulty for the big indications. Um, for some of the others, uh, it takes usually a letter. Uh, as well as an article kind of pointing to the efficacy. But generally, I, at least here in Dallas, I haven't had problems with insurance coverage for this. The bigger problem is the copay, because a lot of people now, the copay is like $20 to $30, depending. So. Is there a book or um, a foundation that you recommend that we go to so we can have kind of like a cookbook in our clinic on how to dose certain patients? Yeah, um, there's a couple. Uh, the National Psoriasis Foundation has, uh, has some available uh, that they can give you, and they usually will put out. They also have the National Psoriasis Foundation has phototherapy courses. Um, so for your phototherapy staff, they used to do them about twice a year, and there's also a phototherapy course at the AAD. Uh, as well. So, so there's also some courses you can take, and then uh, the National Psoriasis Foundation has the, the uh, protocols. Can you say anything about the use of um, tanning booths? I live in a rural area. It's cheap. Yeah. It's accessible. Right. Um, 
I think that's a, that's a big area of, of, that people are looking at right now. And I, I'm interested, actually, because I started doing kind of an unofficial survey of my psoriasis patients. And I said, you know, do you use a tanning bed? And I was shocked, because I think if you start asking, you'll find ex an extraordinary number of patients with psoriasis use tanning beds you know, irregardless of how you're treating them because it, it's helped them for so long. It probably is beneficial, um, but tanning beds incorporate a, a lot of UVA and UVB, and I think the link with skin cancer with those is stronger. Um, so they're not something I necessarily encourage. Another option to that is uh, home light boxes. Both Davlin and National Biological make a bunch of home light boxes. Uh, and uh, they also come with uh, brochures for how to use them. And they uh, can be very helpful for patients who live far away and can't really access a, a local box very well. All right. Thank you very much.